Welcome back to the Librarian Linkover podcast. I am your host, Laureen Kennard. I am having a great time talking with librarians who highlight the wide array of skills we offer and the variety of places we can use them. Our skills work in any setting and my guests are proof of that. My guest today is Amy Nieser. Amy is consulting and outreach lead in research IT at the University of California, Berkeley, and also previously worked at the University of Michigan as the research data curation librarian and at the University of Minnesota in the biological and physical sciences libraries. Amy's research interests include equity in STEM, interdisciplinary and open digital scholarship, innovative uses of technologies in academic environments, and critical digital literacy. Amy, welcome to the Librarian Linkover. Thank you. So glad to be here. Tell us about your work and what kind of projects you take on. Sure. So I manage the consulting program and outreach efforts in research IT which is part of the research teaching and learning organization on the UC Berkeley campus. So research IT is a little bit different. Uh, we're not part of central IT, but we do work closely with them. Um, and we also work very closely with the vice chancellor of research. So we kind of intersect those different areas of campus. And what we do is we partner with faculty, students and staff to help with their data and their computation needs with the overall goal of really advancing research on the UC Berkeley campus. So the types of things that we um, consult about would be like high performance or supercomputing, um, virtual machines, cloud computing, and of course, data management as well, which is my background. So I manage a, a diverse team of data and computing specialists, and that is made up of um, IT staff, librarians, graduate and undergraduate students. Uh, we have an adjunct professor on our team, and then we also work really closely with the nearby Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. So we, we've merged data and computing together to be all on one team. Um, these used to be separate programs, but now we have shared meetings, we have shared office hours, trainings, a shared handbook. Um, and that's really because data and computing are two sides of the same coin. So somebody might come to us with a computing question, but then we will uncover and find out that there may be data questions behind that computing question. So rather than kind of ping-ponging them all around campus into different groups, we decided to bring that data and computing together. So um, an example of this is we are very focused right now on helping researchers who have sensitive data or data that needs to be protected. So through our consulting efforts, we went out, we talked to a lot of researchers, they were coming to us with questions about where do I store my sensitive data, I need to maybe compute on it, where can I do that? And we really uncovered a huge need for a service on our campus. So we brought that back to our team and through that we launched um, this very big effort that we're working on called Secure Research Data and Compute, or SRDC. And now we have a high-performance computing cluster where researchers can um, work with sensitive data, secure storage, and virtual machines. So that is one example. Um, the other part of my position that I mentioned is that I also um, am the outreach lead. So I, I really oversee our outreach and that is to campus, um, to the other University of California campuses. We work very closely with our colleagues um, as well as to national efforts as well. 
So a few examples of this would be, um, we run a women in data science event every year where we showcase women that are working in the data science field. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I just started a women in high performance computing Bay Area chapter as well. That's just getting started. Um, we do things Very with cool. Love Data Week, which many of you are probably familiar with. So just really bringing attention to a lot of these types of efforts. Sounds super interesting. Um, so what traditional, in air quotes, what traditional library skill do you use in your position? I love this question. So um, definitely the skill of the reference interview is relevant in much of my work. And it's been really fun. I mentioned bringing together those data and the computing teams. And I found that the, the data team really brought some of these traditional library skills. So I think a lot of times, um, IT people can get really in the habit of, you know, somebody comes with a question and they want to just solve the problem, answer the question, and don't as much take time to really unpack and figure out what is the question behind the question that we get at with that reference interview. So it's been really powerful that the data folks have been able to teach the computing folks about that for sure. Um, in addition to that, I would say um, also my open access advocacy, for sure. Um, everything that we do, we try to publish, um, not only our publications, but our code. Um, we, we make things open access by default, unless there's some sort of reason not to. And I really think that that comes from my librarian background. Everyone, um, everyone and, have access to everything, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> And then finally, I'll mention um, curation as well. So librarians have been doing this for centuries, of course, we still do it. Um, you know, we do it with data now as well. Um, and so an example of this is I'm working on a research project to better understand how researchers use um, containers and virtual machine images, and not only how they're using them, but how they're evaluating whether they're good, um, what they're doing with them after they create them. And so um, we're coming up with a whole curation workflow for um, these types of objects as well. And sort of along those lines, how do you add value to your organization because of your library skills and experiences? Yeah, so, I mean, I would say that at my institution, um, libraries and librarians are very well respected, which is great. It's one of the reasons I like working at Berkeley. So a lot of times, um, you know, I'll say like speaking as a librarian or somebody with a librarian background and people really listen to and respect that, which I love a lot. That's great. Um, yeah. You know, I really think that I bring um, the piece of like critical thinking around technology, not just like oh, yay, technology is going to solve all of our problems. <laughs> but the kind of librarian, like, let's step back and look at this critically and look at this in relation to, you know, who's making money off of this, who owns this, like, let's kind of look at this in the bigger picture as well. Um, and then finally, I'll add my connections to the library profession are really useful. So right mm -hmm. now, an example of that is we just found this really cool data storage finder tool. And we're looking at if we can implement it at our institution. And I went to the GitHub repository and I was like, oh, I, I know this librarian at Cornell that made this. And so I can just hit her up if I need to. And so I find that being connected to librarians all over the country has been very, very useful. That's great. And when you hire people, what do you look for in a candidate? 
So I love this question so very much. Thank you for asking this. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> this is really important and definitely a passion of mine. Um, so I published, I think last year, a research project where um, my co-author and I examined data librarian job ads between 2013 and 2018. And we compiled a corpus of these job ads. And our original aim was to just look at, you know, what skills do you need to be a data librarian? And can we make recommendations for people that want to move into the profession? But our focus very quickly changed when we realized that there is so much work to do on these job ads to make them more equitable, to attract more diverse candidates. Um, so that ended up being the focus of our paper um, was really around recommendations for making these job ads more equitable. So things like posting salary ranges, thinking about, you know, is a second master's degree really necessary? Does it have to be an MLIS or are you really just limiting your audience to people who are already privileged by having those types of things? Um, you know, other things like making diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism uh, a required qualification, not just like a boilerplate statement, um, things like that. So, um, so I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and working on this topic. So what, when I'm hiring, um, what I'm really looking for are diverse candidates. And I mean diverse in lots of different types of ways, including their backgrounds. So maybe they, like I said, maybe they don't have to have an MLIS for a library position necessarily. Um, I'm looking for people that are excited and interested and willing to learn things. If I see that kind of hunger to learn and excitement, that's great because I really think that, you know, like hard skills in quotes, <laughs> you can learn <laughs> those types of hard skills, right? Like you can learn those on the job, but it's harder to kind of learn how to have that, that drive and that appreciation. Um, I'm also looking for somebody whose work will mutually benefit them as well as us, right? Like I don't just want somebody to like come and do work for us and you get money. No, come and work for us and learn skills in data and computing that you can apply to your PhD research and bring back to your department. Um, you know, learn skills from us uh, that benefit you and then get paid while you're doing it. So that is really, really important to me also. What kind of management skills do you regularly rely on? Mm -hmm. So um, I have the opportunity to go to a leadership program through an organization called MORE, M-O-R, and they're really great. And if your institutions offer um, leadership training through them, I highly recommend it. It was a program called Lead From Where You Are. And the whole point of that program was really that anybody can be a leader, right? You don't have to wait until you're a vice chancellor or a AUL. Um, we're all leaders, right? And we all have leadership skills and potential. And you know, you also don't have to wait until you're managing somebody to be a leader also. Um, you can do a lot of, um, you know, you can offer advice to your colleagues. Um, you know, this doesn't have to be like a hierarchical thing. So I love that. And for me, um, I really try to rely on the skills of being patient and being empathetic 
um, this might come back to that librarian or the uh, the reference mm -hmm. interview <laughs> that I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. You know, listening. Um, sometimes people <laughs> just really need to be listened to. Maybe they don't need that again. That kind of IT, like I'm just going to fix your problem or here's a suggestion. Um, so I really try to treat my team as humans and remember that we're all humans um, and, and make time to be human as well. Like not just like, okay, here's the agenda. We're just gonna get right into the agenda. Um, but, you know, ask people how they're doing. Um, sometimes I like to do kind of fun activities during those team meetings, that, that consulting meeting where it's the data and the computing folks. So um, I'll usually start the meeting. I'll say our meeting starts at 2.10, but starting at 2.05, I'm gonna start DJing. I'm gonna play music. And if anybody wants to come early and tune in and listen to some music, um, you're welcome to, but no pressure either. And people come. And uh, I usually try to do some sort of theme. Um, like actually just yesterday, I played a track from a Palestinian uh, female DJ because it is Arab American Heritage Month. Where um, last time I played a techno artist, Nastia, and she's from Ukraine, of course, bringing attention to everything that's going on in Ukraine right now. So, mm -hmm. so it's mm -hmm. this kind of time of like, you know, acknowledging that we, we have these lives outside of our careers and that also that there's other things going on in the world that are affecting us in different ways. Um, I, think, I think that's definitely kind of like my leadership style, I would say. Um, I some, something, mm -hmm. oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, the last thing I was gonna say is, um, you know, just really reinforcing that point of listening to everybody, like in a group, if we need to make a decision about something, I will wait and listen to everybody. And if somebody hasn't, you know, offered something, or if I can see them unmuting, if we're on Zoom, you know, I'll say, okay, you know, Lorraine, did you have anything you'd like to add? And um, usually we can reach a consensus as a group, but if not, um, I also think it's really important for a leader to um, be willing and able to step in and make a decision, right? If the group can't reach a decision, I will listen to everybody and say, okay, this is what I'm hearing. Does that sound right? I think this is the way to move forward. Um, so, so consensus, but also, yeah, being decisive. <laughs> well, it just, one of, one of the things you said about listening, it reminded me of um, when I was a public library director, once in a while, the circulation manager would ask me to come to their staff meeting for some reason. and. Mm -hmm. They would always look to me to run the meeting and I was like I'm just here for some reason I'm not running the meeting but but I always like would ask them you know how's it going or what kind of patrons have you had and I would let them like vent for like 10 or 15 minutes about some you know terrible patron they experienced or and they all just kind of like got it out so mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure they knew I hear them and you know I'm honoring their what they're going through on a desk because I'm not on a desk anymore but I wanted to make sure that they had a space where they could just say, you know, this person and this happened and, you know, this policy and they just, you know, to just get it out a little bit in a mm -hmm. work situation, not just like after work, but in a work situation that they could feel safe, kind of like venting a little bit about some of the things they've been going through. So then they were, then they kind of were like, okay, now we can get on with the meeting because they, 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 they were heard that I understood, but, you know, I listened to where they were coming from with some of the things they'd been going through. So I think it is also very important Everyone wants to be, you know, acknowledged and heard and 
validated. And it's important to do that as a manager. I really liked what you said that. Yeah, yeah, that resonates a lot, definitely. Um, we always have time on our consulting meeting agenda to just have an open time and talk about any consultations that have come up, maybe that were challenging. And then we'll talk about, you know, why was that a challenge? And then, you know, somebody might share and other people would be like, oh my gosh, that's really hard for me too. And then, you know, it's kind of like you're saying, then people are feeling heard, they're feeling less alone, you know, other people are feeling like this too. Um, or, you know, somebody might say, hey, you know, like I'm a computing person and I did a co-consultation with somebody from the data side of the house and that went really well and here's why. And then that's encouraging, you know, more people to jump on co-consultation. So, you know, just, just making space and time for, for being human, I think is just so very important. And it, it can even be simple. Um, one of, when I, going back to my public library director, um, era. Um, and when a, a staff training day, I had everyone just start off by introducing themselves and giving their title and what they do. Mm-hmm. And it took like three times the amount of time I thought it would, because I kind of assumed everyone knew what everyone did and they didn't. So everyone, including myself, we all learned what every person does. And it really, they were like, oh, well then we should probably share this information or let's get together on this you know, idea. Or it ended up being this whole brainstorming session and it just, it turned into a really great, like organizational, you know, we really advanced our organization by doing that. But mm-hmm. I thought it would just be like, let's go around the room and say a couple of things of what you do. So that, that's another way to make sure everyone knows what everyone is doing. And I think it's really good that people understand how the organization works and that people know what other jobs are because you yeah. can work better when you know what other people are doing. Yeah, totally, totally. And then, you know, just any excuse to kind of inject some fun into that as well. Um, I've done things because, you know, I know that some people on my team are more introverted, some people are more extroverted. And so I try to think of those different styles. Um, One time I did an activity where we did a kind of everybody turn your camera off. We were all on Zoom. And then I had a set of questions of, you know, turn your camera on if you're traveling for the holiday season. And then some people would turn their cameras on and then I'd say, okay, everybody off. No, turn your camera on if, you know, something else. And it was kind of like a little fun game. And I found that that was maybe a little easier for the extroverts in the room, not to have to, you know, unmute and say what you're doing or maybe say something personal. Um, Or one time I just did a very, very simple drop into chat what you had for breakfast this morning. It was a, a morning meeting. And then some people were like, oh, hey, I also had a Pop-Tart or whatever it was. And so, you know, again, just that humanizing, making it fun, um, I, I think is really important. I, I'm just having all these memories um, from when I was a public library director. Again, going back to an in-service day, you know, it's a day of like, you know, nine to five, we're together the, the entire time we have lunch together. And when we had lunch, I said, if you could go any place in the world, where would you want to go? Mm-hmm. So we were saying, you know, different places. And one guy is like, Middle Earth. And we're like, is that a real place? Well, so then we had a debate. Does it have mm-hmm. to be a real place? Is it a real place? And someone was like, Hogwarts, because technically it exists in Universal. But is it really a place? So it was just a really fun, like hearing their theories. And they got a kick out of each other's like, why do you think that's real? You know, that's in a book or you know, people are agreeing, yeah, it is real, you know, so that was a kind of a fun thing to think about where, 
where people would want to go. And some people I never would have thought they'd want to go to these places or things they come up with were so surprising. So it's always mm-hmm. good to like make it lighter and a little more funny. And, and you kind of like you're sneaking in, like learning about people at the same time. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I like that. That's a good uh, icebreaker. Although I never use the yeah, word icebreaker because then I think people are like, oh, no. So I, I sneak <laughs> I it in kind I of know. on the side. <laughs> I know I didn't even say I was doing this. We're just eating. And I just said, so if you could go anywhere, where would you go? And it just like sparked this whole thing. So, mm-hmm. so sometimes you have to, yeah, be on the fly a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for librarians who work with budgets or want to move into a role with budget responsibility, what are a few suggestions you can give us on managing budgets? Yeah, this is a great question too. Um, so I would say to find a mentor Maybe somebody who has a budget, um, maybe it's even your if your boss is um, the budget manager, and just go to that person and express interest and say, you know, I'd like to um, get some experience in this area, and can you show me a little bit how our budgeting process works? Um, I mean, I would say that this is probably a good skill set to, set to have in any topic, um, you know, letting people know that you're interested, putting that energy out into the world. Um, and then you will definitely get opportunities that way. Um, that's how I came about to managing my own budget for my consultants. Um, I think that it was the leadership that was doing that. And, you know, I was expected to do the hiring, but without seeing the budget, I wasn't able to really make good decisions of like, well, how many people can I hire? How many graduate students? How many undergrads? Um, You know, can I get a couple more adjuncts on my team? Like, I don't even know what I'm working with. And so that um, really just, yeah, opened up the opportunity. And then I think that my boss was like, oh, you should just be in control of your own budget. You should see what's going on. And and so that worked out really well. Um, Also asking a lot of questions. Um, So as I mentioned, so I'm in Research IT, which is part of this research teaching and learning organization. Um, so, you know, the RTL has its own budget and budgeting process as well. And we'll have these full team meetings and we'll, we'll, they'll share things about our budget and, you know, being interested and engaged and asking questions and how does this work and how is this different from last year? And, um, and just, again, putting that energy out there, I think is, is really important. What suggestions can you give librarians who want to move into a position like yours? Yeah, so um, the first thing that comes to mind is definitely seeing data as an opportunity and not a threat. Um, yes. I, yeah, I think um, when I first kind of started getting into the data space, I knew some librarians that felt like, you know, maybe data was going to replace what other librarians were doing or, you know, like this is so hard and oh my gosh, I have to learn how to code or program Um, and and definitely not. I would say seeing it as an opportunity, especially if you are a subject librarian. Um, I started out, I was a plant sciences librarian and I found that my faculty wanted to come and talk to me about data questions. They didn't really ever ask me to buy books for them or not so much like journal subscriptions and things like that, but, you know, they would ask me data questions. And so I thought, okay, because I have this data skill set, I have a kind of new way of connecting with faculty. So, um, so definitely seeing data as an opportunity. Also, um, speak up, right? As a librarian, um, we have very, very valuable skills. And I think librarians undervalue themselves a lot. Yes. 
Yeah, say that again. <laughs> yes. And and just building on that, you know, think of yourself and not only think, but you know, speak of yourself as a partner in the research process, as a partner to these faculty and these students that you're working with. Um, I, I hear a lot of language that's kind of like subservient, you know, like, oh, we're serving the faculty and things like that. No, like you're a partner, right? You have all these skills and data curation and preserving and finding data and things that librarians have been doing for centuries, right? That we bring to the table and that's very valuable. So um, I think that will help elevate yourselves as individuals, but also, you know, us as a profession as well. Um, real quick story. There was a, um, a recruiter posted an ad on LinkedIn for a, a temporary librarian. I forget what it was even for. And I replied and said, what's the pay? Because I don't share jobs on LinkedIn or social media if there's no pay list. like what you had said before about equity. <laughs> and she replied, um, she was excited that I was interested based on my LinkedIn profile and wanted to know what I charged. And I said, oh, I'm actually just looking to share it. And I don't share posts without pay. And she goes, well, we don't really know. And I'm like, you're a recruiter hiring for, a, I mean, how do you not know? Yeah. Like there's no way they don't know what to pay. So I followed up with her. I, like, I couldn't stop thinking about it. So I followed up with her a couple months later and she goes, they all, cause they, they wanted, she wanted everyone to say what you wanted for pay. And she said, everyone asked for $20 an hour. So that's what we're paying. And I was horrified. Yeah. And yep. she's like, we can't believe so many people want to work for $20 an hour. And I'm like, yeah, me neither. And I shared that on my LinkedIn, that story. And I said, if we don't value ourselves, how do we expect anyone else to value our skills? Shouldn't mm -hmm. that be like $100, $150 an hour for a temporary? It was some tech thing. I don't remember. But we have to value our skills first before we can expect anyone to value us. And by asking for $20 an hour, that is not valuing our skills. And, that, and then I thought, that's why they don't put a salary down because mm -hmm. they know we'll undervalue ourselves. Oh my God. My soapbox issue as well. I know. Yeah. I yeah. Know. Post salary ranges. <laughs> yes. And the range in New York. Yes. I think New York City and Colorado are requiring a salary to post a job. Mm -hmm. I know here in Illinois, you can't ask for a salary history. So in, you know, pieces and, you know, fits and starts, it's kind of things are happening in that area, but you can't ask for $20 an hour. No, definitely no not. what the job is. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and the ranges um, are particularly great. So it's kind of like the next level because that indicates to a person that, you know, they would be open to people with different levels of experience and that there's a possibility for negotiation. And there's a lot of mm -hmm. research, of course, that shows that women and people from under, underrepresented groups are less likely to negotiate. So by putting a range in, it's kind of like a little cue of like, look, there's a range, you can negotiate here. So there, there's many, many layers to this. <laughs> you know, the employers know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they know what they're doing when they don't post it or when they're asking us what we want. Anyway, that's it's a whole other like, oh could go on for that a long time. Yeah. Um, what yeah. professional associations have you joined or which ones have you gotten the most out of? Yeah, so um, my top two that I really like are um, RDAP, the Research Data Access and Preservation Association. 
they are super cool. And um, I've held a few different leadership positions in that organization. And they're really for um, data practitioners. It tends to be pretty librarian heavy, but it's not only librarians. And they're really cool. They were under a larger organization and went independent. And so they're a nonprofit now and set up all their own board and election and bylaws. Um, and they have a diversity, equity, inclusion and anti-racism subcommittee, which is really cool. So a lot of their work kind of has this social justice lens. Um, they're awesome. And the memberships are really inexpensive and the summit is really, really great. So highly recommend them for sure. And the other organization that I'm really involved with is um, CARC or the Campus Research uh, Computing Consortium. Yes, Campus Research Computing Consortium. <laughs> and they're cool because they have all of these different, um, they call them facings. So um, whether you're a data facing professional or a researcher facing professional, or maybe you're so more software facing. Um, they've got a few of those different ones. And so I hang out mostly in the researcher facing space because of my um, consulting that I lead, but I also um, pop over and hang out with the data facing track as well sometimes. So they're really cool. Each of the kind of facing tracks have different calls every single month. Um, I used to be on the steering committee that planned the researcher facing calls. Sometimes they'll have crossover calls. So the researcher facing and the data facing will hang out sometimes and have topics where both groups come together. And this is a no membership, like this is free. Anybody can join this. Um, they too are really, really into librarians. And so when librarians show up, I think that they're really like stoked on that, which I love to see. <laughs> Nice to get the respect we deserve. Yeah, yeah, totally. So definitely check out CARC. They're really cool. Um, they tend to get together at the conference PERC, P-E-A-R-C, um, Practice and Experience in Advanced Research Computing. Um, I think that's going to be in July this year in Boston. So, um, so that's kind of their conference that they do. But yeah, they do all kinds of really cool trainings and things too. So, so RDAP and CARC are the spaces where and I I'll put out. links I'll put links to those in the show notes so people can find them oh perfect thank you if you were designing a library school course on all things data what are a couple of projects you would assign your students I think see data as an opportunity not a threat is a great name for an intro <laughs> course on data <laughs> I like that yeah this is an interesting one and um one one that I was kind of pondering a little bit so as I mentioned before, I really think that like, you know, the hard skills, like if you need to learn Python or something like that, like that can be learned, right? Like, and in fact, a lot of that you learn on the job, you actually like learn by doing that. So my library school would definitely focus more on things um, like social justice issues and anti-racism, um, looking at things like, you know, archives and who owns these things and what should the relationship of the archive be with you know the groups that they're archiving things from. Um, we have a lot of efforts at UC Berkeley right now um, with indigenous communities and kind of giving back things out of the archive and, and making those available to, to indigenous communities. So, um, so I think topics like that also critical theory, I think is really important, you know, so looking at 
our society and our culture in order to kind of uncover some of these power structures. Um, I would also probably have a class or a project on dismantling classist systems in, in academia. <laughs> so, you know, I've, mm -hmm. I've, worked, I've worked in a lot of different positions and libraries and universities and you know I've been in a union I've been a staff member I've been a tenured librarian um, now I'm an IT staff person um, so I feel like I've kind of been at a, a lot of the different levels and I see the differences and how people are treated depending on their positionality and I hate that and I think that um, you know those of us that work at privileged institutions like we have privilege and I think that we should use it for good and I think that I try to use my privilege to dismantle these classes systems and so I've made a lot more space on my team for undergraduate students for example and they're completely brilliant and just as smart if not smarter than everybody else on the team right and we all have something that we bring to the table, like not only skill sets, but our diverse and unique backgrounds that we can all learn from. And, you know, put the positionality, like, let's break that down, right? Like we're all peers, we're all on the same team. It doesn't have to be like, oh, well, I'm faculty. And so I'm more important. It's like, no, like, let's, let's break that down. Um, so, so that would be Part of part of that as well, and and I think part of those efforts, of course, I guess what's implied there is increasing representation as well. You know, breaking down these barriers, opening up the doors to more different types of people, and, and just increasing representation in these spaces. I think that would be a very popular program. You should do that. <laughs> I recommend you do that. <laughs> Start a library school. Well, thank you. So, why, why did you go to library school? And based on your career so far, does that reasoning still hold? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I always really liked school. And so I thought, oh, is, is there a way for me to stay in school, but not be a loser, right? But like never graduate. So I thought, <laughs> okay, I think I want to like work in an academic environment. Um, but like I think a lot of librarians can relate to, I have many different interests. Like even my undergraduate um, studies, I, I studied in the humanities, I was a German major, I studied film, I did cultural studies, global studies. So like I had four majors because I couldn't pick. And I think many librarians kind of have this like wide range of interests. So I thought, how can I be in academia, but not be like pigeonholed into like one specific thing you know like I, th I thought about maybe getting a PhD in like ecology for example but I didn't want to be stuck in a lab like looking at you know one type of fish or like you know this particular gene like I want this big view so so I realized that librarianship was the way to do that is I can kind of dabble in everything I can do the academic stuff um you know I really wanted a position where I would be paid to do research on things, to publish. Um, traveling is really important to me. And so I love the whole kind of academic thing where I can go to different conferences and present and meet people. <clears throat> and so, yeah, the reasoning definitely holds. It, it worked as a librarian. Um, it definitely worked as I transitioned into a more IT space. Um, I will say that when I took my current job, I did a lot of negotiation and made sure that there was a certain percentage of my job 
where I could still do research and publishing. And they, they wanted, they wanted to support that. And they said, yeah, I mean, that's part of why you're an attractive candidate is you kind of bring this academic side from your librarian background. Um, so you can just do that. And I said, no, I want it to be 5% or 10% of my job descriptions. And I'm not just doing that on my own time. I want the institutional right. support. So um, I guess I bring that up because, you know, advocate for yourself. Um, you know, you as a librarian, you have all these skills, you have this background, you have these connections, you're bringing that with you to these other jobs. Um, and that makes you attractive. So you actually are, you have the power when you're, you know, negotiating and, and you can negotiate for maybe extra travel funding or space to do your own research or, or whatever it is that is your passion. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been really great. I um, look forward to your library school opening. And, <laughs> and um, I love what you're talking about with hiring people in the ads and making them more inclusive. And we, we have a long way to go with that. So I really, uh, I hope a lot of people are following your lead on that because you'll get a better hiring pool. You just will. You'll get a better exactly. hiring pool if it's more inclusive. So mm -hmm. thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And um, I hope that maybe we can post a link to my paper as well with the recommendations of for course. making job ads more inclusive. I'd love to share that more oh, broadly. I will be and... sharing that all over my social media. Absolutely. We'll put that <laughs> awesome. in the show notes too. Great. Thank you to Amy Nisa for being my guest today on the Librarian Linkover. Thank you to everyone who's been binging my podcast. I love hearing from listeners who tell me how useful they find the content that my guests and I have been creating. Please keep that feedback coming. Please like and follow the Librarian Linkover on your favorite podcast app, follow on social media, and visit thelibrarianlinkover.com. Thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.